want you to go ahead and pull out your message notes. Today, I'm going to be talking about family, specifically now here. At the church, we value families. Phyllis and I made a commitment from the very first uh, beginning of this church that we would focus on families. I was telling some of the students in the Leadership Academy uh, this last week that one of the things that we did as a church was when we raised, it was about $190,000 to launch this church, the majority of the equipment that we bought at the very beginning was all for the children. Uh, we went without stuff in the auditorium. I know you look at it, it's like, man, it's nice. We went a year and a half without investing majorly in the auditorium because as uh, the lead pastors, we felt like this, if we can invest in the lives of children, everything else will fall into place. That we understand the bedrock of, of, of society and of our lives is really the families that we build. And I have had the privilege as well as Phyllis to pastor four generations of our family here in this church. My grandparents, which they'll be in the second service. My parents, which mom is praying for the service right now as we're having it. There are some uh, people that are praying over this service and she's one of those. And then my brothers come to the church and then all of our kids. So we have four generations of Kyles that worship here each and every week. Come on, somebody. Isn't that awesome? And so family is important. And not only do I have the four generations, but I have four kids of my own. And so I have a beautiful family that Phyllis and I uh, have, have begun. We, we have a 10-year-old. His name is Caden. And then we have our eight-year-old, his name is Carson. And then I have my two little girls, Addison and Raylan. And Addison is five and Raylan is four. And for us, this is what we've made a commitment to. We're going to raise up a church and we're going to focus on families. But while we're doing that, we're not going to lose our family. Like it's not good for us to lose our marriage and our family because we're trying to change the world. Can't we do both? Can't we make a difference and bring our families along and, and really allow them to be a part of ministry with us? And so I want to talk about families this morning. And, and really the question that I'm going to pose is, what kind of a home are you building? What kind of a home are you building? Because each and every one of us, we're building something. And I think at the foundation of this question, we've got to understand that God is the one that designed the family unit. That it was God's intention that we would have thriving families that would display his glory in this earth. And at the very beginning of the family unit, his intention was that one man and one woman would join in union and have a marriage together. We see that in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. How many know men, you ought to leave your father and your mother? Come on. Come on, I know they got this failure to launch mentality where we can stay at home till we're 40, but the truth is there ought to come a day that you leave your father and your mother and you're united to your wife. And then the Bible says the two become one flesh. And the first example that we saw of this was Adam and Eve. God created Adam, said, hey, it's not good that you're alone. You need a helpmate, a woman. And many women said, oh, she's much better than he was. He made a mistake with Adam and had to fix it with her. <laughs> And so he met, look, the ladies are like, mm -hmm, you hear that, baby? You hear that? I'm God's perfection. And, and, and so he, he created this relationship with a man and woman, and it was Adam and Eve. But out of that union, did you know God intended for you to be blessed? And part of the blessing of God is the fruitfulness of the woman's womb. 
that you would have children. And in society today, the challenge is children many times are an inconvenience. It's, you know, it's not really convenient for us to have children. But in God's eyes, children are a blessing as he establishes his glory in the earth through families. And we see this in Genesis 1.28, that he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. It says, then God blessed them. So he blesses Adam and he blesses Eve. And he says, listen, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to procreate. Come on. Come on, man. It's the beautiful benefits of marriage. And then not only that, I want you to fill the earth. And then look at what he says. He says, I want you to govern the earth. Who do you think he's talking to? He's talking to families. That families would be healthy and families would be whole and they would continue to have unions that are godly unions and they would multiply and then those families would govern this earth and bring glory to God. It's God's design that we have kids. It's God's design that our families be healthy and whole. The tragedy is that there's been a deterioration of families in America today. That instead of having families that are healthy, instead of having families that work together in unity, instead of having families that are committed to one another and that choose to love each other. How many know love is a choice, not a feeling? And so we were called to choose to love your your family and choose to love your spouse and choose to love those God unites us with. The tragedy is today we've seen a deterioration of families. They're falling apart. And, And we all know this. But marriages today have a 50% success rate. 50% of all marriages, according to the recent statistics, end in divorce. And that's the first marriage. The second marriage, 67% of those marriages end in divorce. And then third marriage, 73% of those end up in divorce. Well, if God intended for us to have the foundation on a marriage and then to build the family out of that healthy relationship, how many know there's an attack on families? And then when you go into even more statistics, there are over 12 million single parent families in America. 12 million. 12 million. And of those, 20% of those are single fathers out there trying to raise their kids by themselves. 80% of those are single mothers. And of the single mothers, 49% of those single mothers have never been married 51% have been married but have divorced or widowed or separated. And so let me just tell you this. And and I hear the heart of someone out there. Listen, I'm divorced or I'm a single parent. There's hope. You're in the right place. You've never messed up too much. But what we have to understand is it's not by accident. There is a vicious attack on families in America today. Why? Because God intended for the family to To display his glory in this earth. And we've got to understand that families are under attack. So here's the dilemma that we have to look at. What's the dilemma, Pastor? The, The dilemma is this. If you grow up in a dysfunctional home, you're more likely to reproduce that as you get older. So if it's messed up, if it's dysfunctional, if it's bad, then, then what you have to do as you sit here today is no matter where you're at in your life, you have to say, I'm going to make a choice to break that cycle. I'm not going to allow my family to be raised the way I was if it's bad. Now listen, many of you may have come from a great home. You had great parents and they're still married. This is what I would tell you. You've got to be careful because even if you came from a good family, you still have to choose to reproduce that good family. And how many know it doesn't just happen by accident? You're not just going to wake up and slip. Oh, we, we, we got a good family. How do we do it? I don't know. It just snuck up on us. 
No, you've got to be intentional and we've got to make choices and choose that we're going to build godly families with our lives, with our choices, and with our decisions. So the question again this morning is, what kind of a home are you building? What kind of home are you building? And I want to dive into Acts chapter 10. It's the story of Cornelius. Story of Cornelius. Many of you may have already heard it. If not, let me give you a little bit of the background. It's actually the entire chapter uh, 10 in Acts. And so I just want to summarize a little bit of it. And then we're going to read some of it. It's the story of Cornelius. He is a Roman officer and is the captain of an Italian regiment. He's a godly man. He fears God. He loves God. But not only does he fear and love God, he created a healthy environment where his family fears and loves God. It's a godly household. And because of his devotion to God, what we're going to see is salvation comes to him and to his family. And it's all because he intentionally built a godly house in his home. Today, you know, that doesn't sound like a big deal. You say, well, man, salvation came to us. But what you have to understand is in Cornelius' time, salvation was just for the Jews. They were just preaching the salvation gospel to the Jewish people. And anybody who was not a Jew was considered a Gentile. And they were considered unworthy and unclean. And then in this story, what we see is that the way Cornelius raised his family, lived his life, what he did created God to move in a supernatural way in his life and bring salvation to his family regardless of the precedent of the past. So check it out. I want to show you in verse 1 through 6. Look at what he did as he built his family. It says in Caesarea, there lived a Roman officer, Cornelius, the captain of an Italian regiment. He was a godly man, deeply reverent, as was his entire household. I mean, no, he had to intentionally build that in his home. Can I get an amen? So he gave generously. So here are some things that he did, some ingredients in his life. He gave generously uh, to charity. He was a man of prayer. In many ways, you could say he had a God-first life. And it says, while wide awake, one afternoon, he had a vision. It was about 3 o'clock, and in this vision, he saw the angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. How many of an angel shows up? You're going to be freaked out. I'm going to be freaked out. <laughs> he says, what do you want, sir? The angels then replies, your prayers and charity have not gone, gone unnoticed by God. Now send some men to Joppa to find the man, Simon Peter, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house down the shore and ask him to come and visit you. So what we see here is his lifestyle brought answers and caused God to move in his home. Now, what's happening, and I'm not going to read into it. You can go back and read it. At this same time, Peter is having a vision. Because remember, salvation was coming to the Jews. And Peter sees this cloth that is lowered down. And all these animals are on this cloth. They're unclean animals. And the voice of the Lord, the angel of the Lord says, Eat these animals. And Peter says, Hey, listen, I don't eat these animals because these are unclean animals. And so... Uh, he says, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, the, the, the voice of the Lord, the angel, says this. He says, arise and eat. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. So this happens a couple times to Peter. And he's like, I don't know what's happening. While Cornelius sends his servant to go and get Peter. And then afterwards, Peter's like, oh, I get it. You're bringing salvation to those that have been considered unclean. So he's thinking, okay, something's happening. Now check out what happens. 
in verse 44. It says, even as Peter was saying these things, so now he's at Cornelius' house. He's preaching and he's sharing the good news of the gospel, of which he probably would not have gone had he not had the vision from the Lord. It says, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening. Who's those? The Gentiles, the family members of Cornelius. It says, the Jews who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to the Gentiles too. But there could be no doubt about it, for he heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter asked, can anyone object to me baptizing them? So, hey, listen, I know typically we've not seen salvation come to the Gentiles, but there is evidence that they have received salvation like we have. So listen, we're going to baptize them. Why do we baptize them? It's the wedding band of Christianity. Once we've had a salvation experience, we go underwater and are baptized. And the old man, it's symbolic that the old man stays dead and the new man is resurrected in Christ. So he's saying, listen... We're going to baptize them, and so he did in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And then afterwards, Cornelius begs him to stay for several days. Now, the entire house was saved. Why? Because of the way he built his home. Because of what he built with his life and inside of his family. And the beautiful thing today is, if you've experienced salvation in your life, we are experiencing the fruit of a godly family. Because Cornelius was the first Gentile. So if you're not a Jewish person, then we are experiencing the blessing that a godly home produced thousands of years ago. So imagine the fruit of your life and what it can produce from generation to generation to generation. So the question is, what do I need to learn to build a godly home? The first thing is this, godly homes are built intentionally. Godly homes are built intentionally. Every one of us is building something. So whether it's intentional or unintentional, you're building something with your life. The decisions that you're making, the decisions that you're not making, you've got to realize that you're building something with your life. So if we're going to build something, let's build the right thing. Can I get an amen? I mean, let's just build the right home. Let's say, God, I'm going to be intentional and build the right home. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, start children off on the way that they should go. So we're going to start them off in the way that they should go. So when they're young, that we're going to get them raised up in church. How I many know children ought to be in church? How I many know children ought to know what the Word of God is? Children ought to know what it means to pray. That at the very youngest of age, their prayers are so pure. Their prayers are so honest. We ought to raise them up and say, hey, listen, God hears your prayers. God loves you. Why? Because we're going to start them off in the right way. That even when they're old, they're not going to turn away. They're not going to turn from it. I like to think of it like this. We're planting seeds in the hearts of our children. We're planting seeds in the hearts of our children. And we're expecting what we've planted to grow in their life. It's like gardening. Anybody ever garden? Anybody ever try to garden? We, we've had a couple of failed attempts. Phyllis sitting in here, so I'll, I'll say it. I'll probably get in trouble. <laughs> I'll just say they were my fault. Uh, fail some failed attempts, you know, with gardening. I mean, if you're going to garden correctly, it takes a lot of work. A lot of work. You're like, you don't just put a seed in the ground. Like, you got to pick the right seed. Are you going to do peppers? Come on. You're going to do lettuce. You're going to do tomatoes. I mean, you just, you got to decide what is it that I'm going to grow and what's conducive to grow in the environment that I'm in. And then you got to go and till the soil and you got to work the soil and you got to plant the seed and then you got to put fertilizer and you got to water it and then you're done, right? 
No, you got to go back and you got to water it some more. Ain't that right, Phil? You're like, man, I got to water it some more. And then you know what? Avery, you got to go back. You got to water it again. And you got to water it again. And you got to water it again. And it just takes a whole lot of work. And you can see how pretty a garden can be, right? I mean, it's awesome. But then when you stop taking care of the garden, then what happens is you can have a whole lot of weeds. <laughs> how many know that's what my garden used to look like? Eventually... You're like, ain't nothing going to grow up in that thing right there. Like, it's just, it just not. At some point, and I wonder if in those weeds, in this example, if that's not what some of our families have begun to look like. Like, we plant the seed at the beginning, but then we, we stopped watering it. We stopped nurturing it. We stopped calling our family. And I mean, no, sometimes you got to make them go to church. Like, it ain't about if you want to go to church, you got to go to church. If I'm going to ground you, how many know you never ground your kids from church? I had someone tell me, well, I'm not going to let them go to youth camp because they're grounded. I'm like, please let them go to youth camp so they can get Jesus to correct the behavior that you're trying to ground. Come on, somebody. I mean, it just, and, and at the end of the day... We've got to say, I am going to intentionally invest in my home. I'm going to make decisions and plant these seeds. Why? Because you're building a godly home. And a godly home takes lots of work. I'll tell you this. You can buy a house, but you've got to build a home. That's what it really comes down to. You want a, you want a great godly home? You've got to build it. It takes lots of work. Second thing, if you're going to build a godly home, is you've got to know that every home has a foundation. Every home has a foundation. Foundations are important. It's what gives strength to the, the structure that it's holding up. So if the foundation is strong, the structure will be strong. If the foundation is weak, the structure will be weak. Let me tell you this. In our homes, if our foundations are weak, then what we're trying to build is going to be very weak. But we've got to have strong foundations in our homes. Now, in 2010, many of you will remember there were a couple of earthquakes that really shook the world. Uh, one of them was the earthquake that shook Haiti. How many remember that? A terrible, terrible earthquake. Uh, three weeks after the earthquake, I had gotten a call and was boots on the ground up in uh, Haiti trying to help them rebuild and bring relief and supplies to that nation. And I'll tell you, it was the most devastating thing that I have ever seen in my entire life. Just an entire nation, really and literally so much of it just absolutely destroyed. But I don't know if you know this, just a couple of weeks after Haiti's earthquake, which was a 7.0 with massive devastation, you can see some of these pictures totally, totally devastated. Just a couple of weeks after that, there was actually another major earthquake, and it was in Chile, and it was an 8.6. 8.6. Go to the one that shows the contrast of the two. So you had a 7.0 magnitude in Haiti. 300,000 people died. 300,000 people died. And just a couple of weeks later, you had another terrible earthquake. And if you don't know it, it was 500 times greater than the earthquake in Haiti. 500. And look, only 526 people lost their lives. So they went back to look and study this. And what they found was that Haitians cut corners when they were building their homes and the buildings that they built. 
And so to save money, instead of using quality concrete, they began to infuse extra sand, which looked good on the outside, and it was a whole lot cheaper to build with so they could do a lot more. But the problem is when trouble came, when an earthquake hit, everything they built crumbled. Not only the structures, but the very foundations that they built. They used shoddy material. And it cost 300000 less. And yet in Chile, they kept strict to their building codes. And they used the right amount of concrete and sand. And it was expensive. And yet when those buildings fell, they, they, they didn't, a lot of them didn't even fall. Just like paint off the side, a few bricks here and there. Why? Because when they built the structures they were building, they built them to last. They had good quality foundations. And I'll tell you in our families, when you see families go through hell and back and you're like, how are they still alive? How did they still make it? I can guarantee you this. It's because they built their family on a strong foundation. And I guarantee you God was probably at the center of it. And then you have some families go through the same thing and everything is utterly destroyed. Why? It's the quality of the foundation that they built in their lives. Look at Matthew 7, 24. It says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So wise man, you're going to build it on the right foundation, the rock. What is that? That's the word of God. Putting God first, saying, God, I'm going to not only be a hearer of your word, but I'm going to be a doer as well. It says, then the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat up against the house. And yet it did not. And it did not. It didn't fall. Why? Because it had a strong foundation. And then look at what it says. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them in practice is like a foolish man. So you come to church. You're really not putting God's word into practice in your family. Look at what he says. He said he built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose. The wind blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. Can I tell you this? What you do matters. How we respond to God's word matters. Are you building the right foundation in your life? Are you doing what God is saying? Not just listening to the word of God, but actually applying it in your life. When you do, I promise you this, you don't have to have a perfect family, but you're going to have a healthy family. And healthy families can go through turmoil and tragedy and grief and all the struggles of this world and not destroy your family, but be an example to the world. So is what you're building going to last? Then the third is, is this. You've got to have quality ingredients to build a strong foundation. You've got to have quality ingredients to build a strong foundation. So there's certain things that you've got to focus on that are going to help you build a strong family. And you've got to focus on the right things. I'll tell you this. So I was inspired this weekend. I know, don't, don't, be, don't be, you're not getting this apron. I know all of you want it. You're not getting it. This is what I wear at the house. And you know, and so somehow somewhere at the house, baking gets a little crazy at my house. So we just kind of throw these on. Come on, somebody. It's a little dangerous. It just gets a little crazy. I mean, you know what I mean? It just, so baking in my house is messy. How many know building a family is messy? So, so this is what I would say to you. You don't have to have a perfect family. You just got to have a healthy family, Right. And so a healthy family has some of the right ingredients. And so you can see here some of the baking ingredients because I'm, I'm just a master baker, as you can see. 
Uh, and so, you know, you got your flour and your sugar and your eggs and your milk and your, your uh, salt and baking soda. These are just some of the ingredients that you would have, no matter what you bake, right? I mean, all the bakers, can I get, a, can I get an amen from my baking small group? When's your baking small group? I'm probably going to have to join you. Okay. So, so, you know, it's the same thing whenever we're building a home. you got to have quality ingredients to build a strong foundation. Quality ingredients. I mean, this ain't no cheap. These are nice quality ingredients. So, so when you're going to build a God-first life, and so, you know, you, it'd be like pouring this in here, and I'm building a God-first life. Someone say, well, pastor, what's a God-first life? A God-first life is God, you're first in our life. You're not just something we do. You're the center of what we do. I mean, you know, so, so here's the whole deal. I'm going to go to church every week. I, I, I mean, right, because God is first. I'm going to read my Bible every day. Why? Because, you know, God is first. And so I'm going to make sure that in my life, when you look at Cornelius's life, he had a God first life. And, and, you know, sometimes bacon gets a little bit messy. I mean, you know, it's okay. Sometimes you get things all over the place. Look, they're like, oh, pastor, please. Marjorie and G, all of y'all. Y'all just, you just don't know how crazy it gets. I mean, my kids are throwing food. They got stuff all on their hands. And, and so I know some of you ladies, you don't even measure, right? You just do this. This, that's how Phyllis bakes. I'm like, hold up, hold up. Wait, wait, wait. Look, this, this is the right way. Phyllis is not, no, no, that ain't a real baker. This is, this, I just, how much do you pour in till it's enough? <laughs> and the God first life, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to be perfect. Can you miss church? You can. Just don't miss a lot of it. I mean, read your Bible as much as you can and really say, God, I'm going to put you first in my life. The second thing, and even in Cornelius' life, is that we saw that he actually, he, he had a life of prayer. So a God-first life is not just showing up to church. It's not just being a part of the dream team. And it's not, you know, just all the things that we say. It, it, it's about, God, I'm going to pray all the time, every day. And so we put just, you know, a little bit of salt up in there. And, and so then prayer can even be some milk. How I many you know we get some milk? So if it was somebody else, you're probably measuring, but not you bakers. Y'all just, just pour milk up in there. You're like, pastor don't know how to bake. No, no, I'm just building a home. I'm just doing the best I can. And, and generosity, you know, generosity is like sugar. All you sugar mamas and daddies. Oh, yeah. You know, generosity. <laughs> All the single people say, come on, pastor. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> so, you know, you just, it's, it's generosity. And you say, well, what's generosity? Generosity is not only the finances, but it's your time and it's your talent. That God, we're going to have a generous home. And God, everything we do, you say, well, is it important? It's important for your family to see that you put God first in your finances, your gifts, your talents, your time. Why? Because you're building the ingredients for a godly home that's going to last. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's a godly home that's going to last. And then obedience. You know, you got to have a little bit of obedience, baking powder. I mean, you need just a little. Well, no, we're just going to do a lot of baking powder because you need a lot of obedience. I mean, no, you just got to have a lot of obedience. My goggles are fogging up. It's getting hot. Whew. Just got to have some obedience, man. You know, God, how many know obedience is not easy? Like, is it? I mean, because God will tell you to do stuff this hard. And you're like, come on, God, for real? Yeah, why? Because your kids are watching you. Why? Because it's important that they see you're obedient in the small things and in the little things. And every, why? Because you're building a godly home that's going to last. And then we just put some more prayer. God, I don't know if it's going to work out. <laughs> Good Lord. What's he making? Hey, you hadn't even seen my masterpiece, so don't be clowning. Wow, this is, woo. 
What else? Oh, we got eggs. We got eggs. What would eggs be? Why don't we make eggs? So this, this apron is lightly used. <laughs> you can tell the experience is minimal. So we got some eggs right here. Why? Because that's integrity. Integrity has to work itself all through your life. That you do what you say you're going to do. So you say, I'm going to serve on the dream team. I mean, know you serve on the dream team. You say you're going to be somewhere. You're going to be there. And you're not just going to be on time. You're going to be early. Why? Because that's what we do. We show people through the lives that we live that God is alive and well. And every decision we make, everything that we say, everything that we do, people are not going to listen to what you say. They're going to see what you do. And so integrity, it just builds a home that will last. just builds a home. And, and then you just stir it up some more. And, you know, if you're my family, it just gets a little crazy. Like we just, we throw stuff and then eggs and all kinds of crazy. But, but the beautiful thing is this. Your family doesn't have to look like my family. What you're building isn't going to look exactly like it. So for us, look, man, we just built this beautiful, beautiful cake. And the baker is glorified in the masterpiece of what it created. How many know God is glorified in the masterpiece of your family when you use the quality ingredients of your life? Why? Come on, sir. It's awesome. <clears throat> and it's all about key ingredients. That you, now, now, you've got to add some other things, but you've got to say, God, what is it that you need me and that I need to have in my life? And some of you, can I tell you, you're probably feeling a little bit overwhelmed. If, if we were to be honest, if we were to look at your family, it might not look like this. It would be the one, anybody bake a cake and it's sunken in? <laughs> like, all the time. I mean, it's like I thought I put everything in it, and you overcooked it, you weren't paying attention, it's burnt. And so some of us may have those families in it right now. That's what our family looks like, a cake that's not a masterpiece, but that's a disaster. Can I tell you this? That it's never too late. There's always hope. It's never too late for you and your family. There is always hope in your life for what God can do in your home. God loves dysfunctional families. I, in fact, you know, as I was doing this, come on, give, give them a hand. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> I know y'all want to try my, my mix. I know. But as I was studying this, you know, we've been working on this for months, just praying for the families that would be here. You know, my heart began to break, and I have a team, and we, we write these messages and create them, and you know, as I was working through it and practicing and just thinking about the things I said, my heart broke for dysfunctional families. Can I tell you my family's dysfunctional? Like we're all little, like every one of us have got some kind of dysfunction in our family. And if you don't think so, you're probably it. <laughs> you're like, no, it's good. No, 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 no. No, it's right now. And as I studied this out, do you know it's easier for us to find families with a lot of sin in the Bible than those that are perfect, that it's easy to find families that have pain than it is to find families that have a lot of harmony. Let me, let me just show you something that I found very interesting, and I'm going to read some of these because it's too much for me to, but in the book of Genesis alone, because, you know, as I was doing, I thought, man, you know, we all have dysfunction in our families. The goal is not to be perfect, but it's to be better than I was, that I'm getting better, I'm getting healthier. And so there's hope for those that feel dysfunction in Genesis, just the book of Genesis. I want to read some of the families and the dysfunction in just the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, first husband and wife, commit original sin, the first sin and disobeyed God. 
Genesis chapter 4, Cain, their firstborn son, kills Abel and slaughters him, murders him. He's jealous and so he kills him. So here we have murder takes place in the very first family. His younger brother, he kills him. Genesis chapter 16, Abraham's wife can't get pregnant, so she gives her servant Hagar to Abraham as a concubine to bear a surrogate child. Then Hagar bears Abraham a child, which was the whole goal. And Sarah abuses Hagar in jealous anger. And Abraham's just passive in the whole affair. I mean, how many know that's dysfunction? Genesis chapter 19, Lot's reluctant to leave Sodom when, when the angel said, you got to leave. Uh, which Sodom is a sexually perverse generation and a perverse city. And then his wife disobeys God. She's turned into a pillar of salt as she looks back at the city of perversion. And then weeks later, check it out, his daughters seduce him in drunken incest. Genesis 25, Isaac and Rebekah play favorite with their favorites with their twin boys Jacob and Esau, and they become one of the worst sibling rivalries in history. Verse 20, or chapter 25 and 26 of Genesis, Jacob manipulates and deceives Esau, his brother, out of his birthright and his blessing. So he's a deceiver. And then Esau sells the birthright for a cup of soup. He grieves his parents by marrying a Canaanite woman. He nurses a 20-year murderous grudge against his conniving younger brother. I mean, no, that's some dysfunction. Genesis 29 and 30. Some of you are like, man, I'm feeling better already. <laughs> Uncle Laban deceives his nephew Jacob. He smuggles his oldest daughter Leah in as Jacob's bride instead of Rachel, which he had worked so hard for. And it's intended to marry Rachel. And this results in Jacob marrying sisters. How many know that ain't a good idea? It's a horrible situation. It births another nasty sibling rivalry where the sisters are competing to birth him more children. But check it out. That rivalry produces the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Not only that, but that's the same bloodline of Jesus. All out of dysfunction. Genesis 34, we ain't done yet. Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped by a pagan Shechem who then wants to marry her. And Simeon and Levi respond by massacring the entire village of Shechem. All the men. Genesis 35, Jacob's oldest son Reuben, he can't resist an incestuous desire to sleep with one of his father's concubines, the mother of some of his brothers. Genesis 37 and 45, 10 of Jacob's sons contemplate murder against their brother Joseph, but they sell him into slavery instead, and they lie about it to their father for 22 years until Joseph exposes them. Then Genesis 38, Judah, Judah he's a widower. He frequents prostitutes. Uh, this occurred enough that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, whom he had dishonored by not allowing her to marry someone else, she knew that if she disguised herself as a temple prostitute or as a prostitute, he would sleep with her and she could have a child. And he did. And she did. So someone would say, okay, pastor, why would you say all that? Why would you talk about all of the dysfunction that you just read? And here's my hope. Here's my, here's my point. There's hope. There's hope. God specializes in redeeming messes. As we get ready to close, what does that mean? That means no matter where you're at in your life right now, no matter what situation you find yourself in, you could be someone that says, man, pastor, we've got it all together. This is just a good reminder. 
And I would say, great, let it be a reminder. But for those of us that are still working through some of the dysfunction and in our own hearts and the unhealthiness of our lives, we could say this, God, you redeem the messes in our life. You didn't cause them, but because your power is so great, you can redeem them. And then no matter how bad it is, God, you're the God of hope. That if I'll use some of these ingredients, well, my kids are old. Yeah, that's okay. Just start baking with what you have right now. Make sure that you're saying, I'm going to have a God first life. Well, they won't talk to me. Yeah, but as you put God first, the great thing is he has the power to turn their hearts back to you. Well, what do I do? I just, I go to church and I show them the love. I live a life of integrity. I, I, I obey God. I have a generous life. I do the ingredients that I know that God's called me to do. Isn't that what Cornelius did? The beautiful thing about his story is, listen to this. Cornelius was not doing those things to get something. He was doing it because his life had been touched by God. And then out of a changed life, out of this experience, somehow he must have encountered Jesus. Somehow he must have seen the gospel and in his life. It touched him so much that he said, listen, God, I'm not doing this to get it. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. I hate it. Like, I get it. God blesses us and we're called to name out the things of God's blessing. But the problem is I don't do it to get it. I do it because he is worthy. Because he is a good God. Because he saved me. I was a sinner dying and going to hell. And he saved my life. And it's out of that motive that now I say, God, I serve. Oh, you can bless me. But God, I hold those things loosely. I hold you as the greatest treasure. Never treasure the stuff more than the creator of the stuff. And we say this morning, there's hope. Thank God there's hope. He's a God of hope. So I just want to pray over you. That no matter where your family is, no matter what you're walking through, that God is going to redeem your situation. You build a strong foundation. Put God first. And Listen, if you don't have a church, I want to invite you to join us here at the church. Come be a part of our family. Come, come join with us. This isn't a church full of perfect people. This is just a church full of people trying to get closer to God. Herds, habits, hang-ups. I tell a lot of my stupid stories. Why? Because I want you to know it's okay to come in here and be real. God loves us. And he gets so much glory out of us. Just love God. I love you. I'm not perfect, but I love you. I'm just, I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to change my life and I'm going to make sure that I'm using the life that you gave me to build what you've intended for me to build. (music) 